You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Today we're looking at this idea of constructive church. What does it mean? I introed this last week, but just in case you weren't here, what does it mean to have a church congregation in a post-deconstruction world? So that's a word that lots of people have talked about over the last 10 years or so, this idea of deconstruction, kind of taking apart your old beliefs, your old faith, and then hopefully putting it back together in a slightly different way. Lots of people have written stuff and done lots of talks about deconstruction, and people are starting to look at post-deconstruction. How do I put something back together? But most people are looking at that, it seems to be, in an individualized way. How do I sort my faith out after I have deconstructed? So what we're doing last week, this week, and for the next two weeks is to look at what that might look like on a Sunday morning as a community of people meeting together on a Sunday. What does it look like to be a constructive church? Last week, I looked at music and worship and what that means. Next week, Jill's going to look at constructive discipleship, and then Lillian's going to end by looking at constructive prayer. And today, I'm looking at constructive evangelism. All of these words, all of these concepts that have formed a big part of how we do church together, what does it mean in a post-deconstruction way? I'm going to start by telling you a story about a guy that I once saw on a stage in Cardiff City Centre. My sister and I had gone there to do some shopping and we were walking from the car park to the shops and we walked past this big stage and this church in Cardiff was having a big evangelistic event and there was a guy standing on the stage and as we walked past we heard him and he said let me tell you a story about a man this man was sinful this man got in trouble with the police this man did all this kind of stuff you know and this man was taking drugs and he was drinking and this man and then this man met Jesus and his life was turned around and he tells all this story you know about how you can have your sins forgiven and everything and then he says and let me tell you one last thing this man and I said to my sister slightly too loudly was me just before he could say was me which was meant to be obviously the big punchline in his entire talk so I kind of ruined it but no one was more embarrassed than my sister so that was the important thing there I felt like it was okay but that I think is what evangelism has meant isn't it for lots of people and for lots of churches this kind of pre-deconstruction idea of evangelism is basically this it's about getting people to pray a prayer to forgive their sins to give their life to Jesus and then everything would be okay I think it was also often wrapped up in talks about hell too we were talking about this at being human last thursday night which is our like introduction to the church and its theology course that we run and colin who was sitting over there said that when he was a kid he was scared into following jesus because basically he was told that if he didn't he'd go to hell and i said that's the same story that i have i remember being 10 years old and being in Sunday school, and my Sunday school teacher telling me that if I died before I had prayed this prayer, I would burn forever in hell. I went home that night, unsurprisingly, I couldn't sleep. And then I prayed this prayer. And that's what evangelism was for me. It was about 
trying to get out of burning in hell, which is not particularly a positive way to encourage anyone into a relationship with Christ, I don't think, is it? Another phrase that people used then was, once saved, always saved. Anybody heard that before? Lots of nods and hands going up. It basically means, for those of you who are lucky enough not to have heard it, it basically means that once you've made that decision to become a Christian and you have prayed that prayer, there was no going back on it. So whatever you did after this point, it didn't matter because you had once prayed that prayer. And so it was all okay because you were going to go to the good place and not the bad place. But everything was geared towards this. Once you'd prayed that prayer... Because it was once saved, always saved, you were going to go to heaven and not to hell, and that was okay. It kind of didn't really matter what you did from this point forward, because you were saved, and therefore it didn't really matter what you did for the rest of your life on earth, as long as you were going to the right place after you died. Everything, I think, was geared towards people making that big one-off decision. People always used to quote one of those verses that we asked Mike to read to us. This is, this is from 1 Peter 3.15. It says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you had. Anybody else ever told that? You should always be looking to give the reason. The bit that everyone used to leave out, of course, was everyone who asks you. Lots of people were always really ready to give reasons, even whether they were asked or not. I had a friend who could basically turn any conversation into an evangelistic conversation. You're not feeling very well today. Well, let me tell you about someone who really suffered. Everything was about trying to get people to commit to those one-off decisions. And because it was about everyone committing to that one-off decision, people decided that the best way to get people to do that was to put on big events, which was solely geared towards doing exactly that. Anyone know who this is? It's Billy Graham, that's correct. Billy Graham, according to the internet, was the world's most successful evangelist. He's estimated to have preached the gospel live to over 200 million people. Obviously, that's a big number in the pre-internet era. But now there's a guy called Hosier who's written a song called Take Me to Church, which tells a very different story of church and has two billion streams on Spotify. Funny Spotify and YouTube and things have been around in those days. Billy Graham could have stayed at home. Anyway, the point of these evangelistic events was all just a big lead-up to the altar call at the end. So the end of these events, Billy Graham would call people forward and he would say, give your life to Jesus now. And then you would go forward and you would pray that prayer. And that's what it was all designed to do. Get you to make that call, to make that one-off decision. Because once saved, always saved, you were going to go to the good place and not burn in hell. Billy Graham was interviewed in 1990 on an American TV show. And he said, what happened? So the interviewer said, so what happened next? And Billy Graham was honest enough to say, I think probably about one in four people actually then, after going forward, joined a church and were part of a church. About 25%. Actually, Billy Graham was being very optimistic. There's been a massive survey done of the Billy Graham events and events like that. And the stat that gets reported from those surveys is that it's probably more realistically about 6%. About 6% of the people who go forward in that moment are part of a church a year later. Now, 
you know, that might not be Billy Graham's fault. There's lots of reasons for that. You know, people go forward emotionally in the moment. It might be that they really did want to get stuck into church, but they weren't welcomed when they were there. But, you know, it didn't matter, did it? As long as they've prayed the prayer. But I'm not sure about much of that. I think that in a post-deconstruction church, we've got to be thinking that there's more to evangelism than just getting people over the line. And I'm not sure about putting on big events, which are all about that decision, and then who knows what happens after that? Who really cares? That's not what we're after. So what do we do then about evangelism? Because I think we can get kind of embarrassed by the idea of evangelism, can't we? Partly because in lots of us, it will conjure up some of those memories of the stuff that I've just talked about. Or things like the Whitson Walk, which my church used to do every Pentecost Sunday, where we'd all stand outside our church, and the other churches would walk down the road, and we would join in this walk to the town center, and then in the town center, we would have a big evangelistic event. I will tell you that the Whitson Walk did one thing. It got me praying more than any other event that we did, even if my prayer was solely, please, God, don't let anyone from school see me. Even the word evangelism can make people feel a bit funny, can't it? Because we've just made it into a series of bad things, really, I think. We've made it all about heaven. We've made it a set of easy answers. And we've made it something that can come across quite negative to a lot of Christians, but certainly to a lot of people outside of the church. It's, it was Pride in London yesterday, and I was reminded while I was writing this of a video that I saw of Pride in Birmingham. Lots of people will know Mark Varney Bennett, who was part of our church for a long time and went up to Birmingham and is now involved in an inclusive church up there. And I've been engaging with that church a few times over the last couple of months, and, and through their Twitter feed, I saw this video. You can't hear what's going on in the background of this, but it is your classic Christian hate preacher who goes along to these kind of events and shouts things about sin. But here's the response from somebody who was marching. Repent your sins, darling. Repent your sins. Do you know what, babe? Do you know what? sure how much of you that you could hear but um that was uh somebody who calls themselves a drag chanteuse called fat butcher um who was responding to um somebody shouting out that they needed to repent of their sins by shouting back um the only person here who needs to repent of their sins is you because we are loved and you are loved here as well by all the people who are walking down this street I think we've made evangelism into that sometimes, haven't we? More about hate than love. Because it should be a positive thing, shouldn't it? We've said this a few times in church, but the word evangelism comes from a Greek word, euangelion, which means good news. 
And the thing is, I think we still have good news to share. One of my favorite verses is John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says, I have come to bring life and life in all its fullness. That's, for me, what it's about. We, we have this radical story, this revolutionary Jesus that we follow. It is good news. It is meant to be good news to people, and we've made it into something that it isn't. We were talking again in Being Human the other day about that word evangelism and the word evangelist. You know, I would still say that I am an evangelical Christian because I refuse to give up on that word and leave it with the fundamentalist right-wing conservatives. But realistically, I'd probably only say it if I had about two minutes to explain what I meant by that and what I didn't mean by that. So if I'm not willing to give up on this word, if we're not willing to give up on this idea of evangelism, then what does it look like in a progressive church? And like last week, when I talked about the songs that we sing in our services, how can we avoid throwing the baby out with the bathwater? How can we take the good of the tradition that many of us have been brought up with and build on that? Not shying away from this idea of evangelism because of bad experiences, but find a third way a constructive post-deconstruction approach to evangelism, which we can feel positive about, not embarrassed by. Because there are good things to take away. I went to one of those evangelistic events about 20 years ago near my parents' house. It was a church in the local area that had put this event on. It was like a men's evening, and the speaker was an ex-rugby player. He'd played first-class rugby, the top division, and he was the only person who'd ever been given two life bans by the Welsh Rugby Union. He was given a life ban for fighting on the field, and then they rescinded it, and then he was given another life ban for fighting on the field. And it's because... He was a bit of a mess inside. It wasn't just the rugby field where he would fight. He would go out on a Saturday night to a place called Blackwood, which is near me, and is a tough place. And he would beat up all the people in Blackwood, and he'd jump in a cab, and he'd go to the next town, and he'd do that as well. He says his life was a mess. Violence and aggression was all he knew. But then one day, he had a transformational experience where he started to follow Jesus, And it totally transformed his life. And so he then came to these events and he talked about all this kind of stuff. And again, at the end of the service, loads of people walk forward and they pray this prayer. And even in those days, 20 years ago, I was pretty cynical about that kind of stuff. And I sat there thinking, I wonder how many of those will still be in church in a couple of months' time. Because I've read this stat that says it's probably only about 6% of them. But the thing is... The guy who was speaking that night, his life had been undeniably transformed for the better because of an encounter with Jesus. Regardless of what you think about an evangelistic service and the way that it's put on and the altar calls and all that kind of stuff, it is still true to say that this guy's life had been transformed. He would say, he said, I would go to bed, I would turn the light out, and in that moment, in the darkness before I went to sleep, suddenly I wasn't the big strong guy, the guy that everyone was scared of. I was lost, and I sat there not knowing who I was, and now I turn the light off and I lie down, and before I go to bed, I know who I am because I know I am loved by God and I am made in the image of God. 
Now, you can say what you like about evangelism, but people's lives being transformed for the better because they've chosen to follow Jesus is something I think we still need to be encouraging because that is undeniably still a good thing. We see examples of this over and over again in the Bible, and there's an element of that which we should still be trying to replicate because without a transformation moment for Paul on the Damascus Road, he wouldn't have half the New Testament. So how do we do this? How do we encourage stories of transformation in an authentic way that fits with our theology, which isn't about scaring people away from hell and isn't about just getting them to make a one-off decision? Like last week, there are millions of things I could say here, so I'll just pick a few. Firstly, it's about what I've written on the screen here. I think it's about conversation, not conversion. I think traditional evangelism always seems like a bit of a competition, like you either win or you lose. Even the language that's used is about winning lost souls for Jesus. People are lost and they need to be found. I think if we approach it in this way, people are less likely to respond because they'll feel like you're getting at them. You know, they say no one ever told, changed their mind by being told they were wrong. And I think there's something in that. Millions of years ago, when I was a student, I spent a Christmas working at HMV. And one Monday morning, I was chatting to somebody and they said, what did you do this weekend? And I talked about going to church. And the girl on the next till to me, she said, oh, well, you're a Christian, you. I'm an atheist, and let me tell you why I'm an atheist. And for the next five minutes, as we carried on serving customers, she, she gave me all of these like well-rehearsed lines that she'd clearly given over and over again about why she wasn't going to go to church and why she had become an atheist and why she was sure God didn't exist. And at the end of this five minutes, she said, okay then, your go. Now you're going to tell me why I'm wrong, are you? And I said, no. I said, but if you genuinely want a conversation about it, I'm really up for a chat. And she was shocked, visibly shocked. She didn't know how to respond to that because all she had got back from Christians had been argumentative, winning souls that are lost for Jesus. And actually what happened there is like, we became friends. And what actually happened is we won an award that Christmas for being the best HMV in the country. And because we'd won this award, they gave us some money, which the manager put behind the bar in a local pub. And one Friday night, we all went to the local pub and had free drinks all night. And that evening, she came up to me again, after having had a few free glasses of wine, I think. But, and then she sat down and she said, come on then, let's talk about this. And we had a far better conversation than we would have had if I had tried to convert her in that moment, arguing her points while we were still trying to serve people at HMV. It's got to be relational. And I think because of this, it might take a long time. It's not about quick wins. Earlier on this week, I sat with Dick over at Pret and we had a coffee and we talked about this. And he told me his story, which is a story of personal transformation. And he said, well, it was because Di started going to this church and the minister used to come and see me. And Dick said, this minister came to see me every week for two years. Conversation, relational, listening to other people's stories, telling your story and telling God's story. I didn't go to 
pride yesterday because I was writing this talk and if I had gone, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to say anything this morning. We would have just had to extend the rest of the service. But it did get me thinking about this film. Who's seen this film? Anybody not seen this film? It's called Pride. Right, those of you who haven't seen the film, go home and watch it. It's on iPlayer until Wednesday. Honestly, I would encourage you to watch it. It tells the story of in the mid-80s, a gay guy in London sees a story on the news about the striking miners, and he says, there's something here that correlates the attitudes and the opinions from the media and from the government that striking miners are getting is the same attitude, the same approach, the same media coverage as gay people are getting. And he decided there and then to start up something called Lesbians and Gays Support the Miners, LGSM. And this film tells the story of the developing relationship between the LGSM in London and a mining community in South Wales. Now, now people who know me, I don't really like films because I don't like sitting still for two hours and not talking, but this film, it's about inclusion, it's about community building, it's about London and South Wales, it's about working class people working together, um, and it's about left-wing politics. I mean, if there, if there ever was a film I was going to enjoy, it's probably going to be this one. And I really would encourage you to watch it because it's a great example about conversation because the story goes that LGSM rang a load of people and they couldn't get any mining communities to say yes to taking their money. Again, how true this is and how much of that's a film, I don't know. But eventually they ring a working men's hall in South Wales and they start this conversation, and they start this relationship. Now, what they didn't do there was treat difference like a win-lose situation. What they didn't do there is say, well, what you've got to understand is, so it, you know, in London, we do things this way, and what we don't do is this. And when they went down to South Wales, what the striking miners didn't say is, well, we'll take your money, but we don't want a relationship with you because, you know, we're straight and you're a bit different, and we're not sure about that. The film tells the story of a genuine relationship that becomes a mutual relationship as well. The end of the film, and I'm sorry for spoiling it for you, is that the year after, at Pride in 1985, a minibus turns up, and it's the miners from the Delice Valley that they've been supporting for the last year. And then another bus comes, and then another bus comes, and then another one comes, and there are miners from across South Wales, who all turn up to march at Pride because your struggle is our struggle, because we have a connection that's built through relationship and through conversation. This is what Jesus did. Look at the stories of Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus and the rich young ruler, Jesus and the woman at the well. Relationship and conversation. Walk with people every day and not just Sundays. Listen to their story. Tell your story. It's about life. It's not just about Sunday mornings. We express the love and the example of Jesus through our actions. Because this is the thing I quoted earlier. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have 
But that is where people stopped often when it was quoted to me. But here's the whole verse. Do this with gentleness and respect. Not shouting at people, not arguing with people, not trying to win them and backing them into a corner. Give an answer. Give the reason for the hope. But do it with gentleness and respect. Here's another thing. A hundred daily decisions. I won't say much about this because it tips over into this idea of discipleship, which Jill will talk about next week. But, you know, it's not just about one big decision, is it? For me, it's more than that because every day I make hundreds of decisions where I can choose the decision which more closely replicates what Jesus would do in this situation or a decision which is based on self-interest. It's got to be about more than one decision. It's a hundred decisions every day. That 6% that did stick with the church, chances are they did that because they found a community that helped them to continually make these good decisions because we're sharpened, we're influenced by the company that we keep. Also, if someone does decide that they want to find out more, we've got to make this easy to access. The language we use in our church has got to be accessible. Even the fact that those of us who have been around a church for a while, we know what to do, what prayer looks like, how long the talk will last, how long the whole service will last. We've got to make sure that we're a welcoming space. So at the end, that's why we talk all the time about tea and coffee, get to know somebody that you don't know, because it's a horrible thing, isn't it, to walk into this environment for the first time not knowing anyone. So we've got to keep our head up, look for those conversations. And if church isn't accessible for whatever reason, tell us why. Maybe a church service isn't the thing that will be accessible to your mates. One of the main reasons for the growth of Methodism wasn't just because of John Wesley's wonderful preaching, but because on a Saturday afternoon, alongside a normal church service on a Sunday, he would run a talking shop where they'd sit around in a circle and it was deliberately aimed at the uneducated, the working classes in the area who weren't going to come on a Sunday and get to you know, experience everything and understand the sermons. It was a deliberate attempt by Wesley to sit in a circle on a chair with everybody else around him and talk straightforward language. No dressed up theology. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's something like that. There's also another element of evangelism which I think looks really different in a post-deconstruction church, and it's this. How do we respond to people of other faiths? When I tried to be a Baptist minister, I studied alongside someone who came from a Hindu background and spent most of his time trying to convert Hindus to Christianity. He was coming from this, you know, pre-deconstruction place, and he definitely believed that if he didn't convert these Hindus, they were all going to go to hell. He reminded me of the story that Rob Bell tells at the beginning of Love Wins, a book he wrote years ago, which got him into trouble with people who clearly hadn't read any C.S. Lewis or studied any theology, but that's another story. At the beginning of that book, he tells a story about an art exhibition that they put on in their church, and in this art exhibition, somebody had quoted Gandhi, and somebody had stuck a post-it note onto this quote saying, reality check, he's in hell. Gandhi? Really? 
probably one of the most loving, caring people in the world. Is Gandhi in hell? Because he wasn't a Christian. See, the evangelism of the pre-deconstruction church would say, yeah, right? Like this guy I studied with, if I asked him that question, he'd say, yeah, of course he is. Of course Gandhi's in hell, he wasn't a Christian. So should we be out there trying to convert everyone who isn't a Christian? This isn't a, a new question. Uh, in 1959, Pope John XXIII announced the creation of the Second Vatican Council, looking at the doctrine of Catholicism. Um, and they answered this question. In 1966, they wrote this. Upon the Muslims, too, the church looks with esteem. The Muslims adore one God, living and enduring, merciful and all-powerful. And it goes on to say that they should forget the past. Christians and Muslims should forget the past, but strive for mutual understanding and make common cause in fighting for moral values, peace, and freedom. Now, this is a good start, isn't it? At least it says that Christians should work with Muslims, which was a step forward, sadly, at that point. But what does that mean about evangelism? Still doesn't answer the question, does it? Should we be trying to convert people? There are three approaches that Christians take here. Exclusivism says Jesus is the only way to be saved, and so we should be trying to convert everyone to Christianity. That's what my Hindu mate would say. Secondly, is inclusivism, which says that Jesus is the definitive revelation of God. So the salvation accomplished by Jesus embraces all people and is therefore available to all. All this pluralism which holds that all religions mediate the knowledge of the mystery of God, and every religion is equally valid and an equally valid way of salvation. Is it this? Or is it something else? I quite like the approach that the Presbyterian church has taken. They've written down this. Jesus is the only savior, and everyone is called to place their faith in him. Yet, we do not presume to limit the sovereign freedom of God who desires everyone to be saved. Therefore, we neither restrict the grace of God to only those people who profess faith in Christ. Grace, love, and communion belong to God, and they're not ours to determine. Because there are other verses, verses like this, John 12, 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, not all Christians, all people. I think that Jesus is the definitive revelation of God, but I think the salvation accomplished in Jesus embraces all people. I don't think the Holy Spirit is only at work in Christians. I was telling somebody a story this week about a mate of mine who would class himself as an atheist. He was meant to be going on a, a big night out down in Brighton with some work friends, and it got cancelled last minute. And he was just checking through Twitter, and he saw a tweet from our food bank which said that we were short of food. And he worked out in his head, right, well, I was going to spend 30 quid on a train ticket, 100 quid on a hotel, I probably would have spent 50 quid on a meal, another 50 quid on beer. And he added it all up. And he went to Tesco, and he spent the money that he would have spent the night before on buying food for the food bank couple of hundred quid's worth. Now, he would tell me he's an atheist. 
he would just say he's just a nice guy trying to do a nice thing. But in situations like that, I wonder whether this is the move of the Holy Spirit in something beyond Christianity. That's why I think I can believe in the unique importance of Jesus. But at the same time, I can acknowledge all the wonderful work that my Muslim friends do in serving God and serving our neighbors. I think we're called to work together for justice, compassion, and peace in the expectation that we have something to give, but also something to receive. And one last thing as I finish. There's one more big question. What are we calling people to? There's a guy called Brian McLaren who says, being one of God's people means not to be chosen for exclusive and elite privilege, but for universal service and sacrifice. He talks about the initial call of Abraham from Genesis 12. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We're not saying to people follow Jesus and get a ticket to heaven. We're saying this is about today, life on earth, not about what happens after you die. It's about serving others. It might not be glamorous, but it does have the potential to change lives. So I think this means something about the rest of our week as well. Go, don't just stay. Don't just stay here. Don't just stay in this church building, but go love your neighbors, love your work colleagues. Talk to them about this thing that you believe in. And the last thing is this. It should look messy. The only way that it doesn't look messy is if we've got sameness, if nothing changes. If the people who come here on a Sunday are the people who have always come here on a Sunday. If the people who come here on a Sunday look like us, act like us, have the same level of education that we do, have the same jobs that we do. If we're doing this job properly, if we're doing constructive evangelism in the community, it should look messy. So go. Let's share our faith. Let's go on that journey along with people, knowing that it is a long-term relationship of conversation, not just a one-off moment. Let me pray for us. And then I invite Ben back up to sing our last song so may we not see our neighbors as converts to be one may we see them as friends bearing the inherent likeness of God may we journey with people taking time to get to know each other in the knowledge that we all have things to learn and to share from and with each other and may we also live transformed lives, daily making the decisions to live out the good news, the genuinely good news of Jesus, that God loves us, and that this love can change the world. Amen.